I'd had loads of ideas and wrote them all down and never did anything with them. So I've got all this energy that I need to put somewhere, uh, put into something. I don't know what that is. I haven't found the one yet. It was when I didn't force it and I did something really aimlessly. That's when it happened. Welcome to the Out of Hours podcast, the podcast for people who are creating things they think should exist in the world. I'm Georgia Ritter, founder of outofhours.org, a community for people with side projects. I believe that everyone has a great idea, and working on things we care about can help us be more creative, more resilient, and more confident. There are barriers that stop us from starting, sometimes time, money, or network, but also self-belief, not knowing where to start and wondering what other people might think. On this show, I'll explore the stories of people who have followed their curiosity, been brave, and started a side project, only to turn it into something much bigger than they ever thought possible. I'll explore the stories of nonprofits, businesses, creative projects, and social movements to understand the practical first steps they took, the doors these small ideas can open, and the magic that happens when you start taking your own ideas seriously. Today on the podcast, we have Ben Branson, founder of Seedlip, the world's first distilled non-alcoholic spirit. Ben grew up with a father who worked in design and a mother from a farming family. He started Seedlip originally not from a business opportunity, but because he was curious about what he could do and whether he could actually finish a project. He was curious to tinker with plants and learn and have a creative outlet experimenting with the natural world. He officially started Seedlip in 2015, inspired by nature and on a new mission to change the way the world drinks by solving the question of what to drink when you're not drinking. Seedlip has since turned into a global success. He's had investment from drinks giant Diageo. It's in thousands of the top bars and restaurants across the world, including London's Savoy Hotel and Soho House. And he's brokered partnerships like the Chelsea Flower Show and also met David Attenborough. We talk about why he thinks it's important to know your strengths, why you should trust your dreams, why businesses should serve you as much as you serve the business, and why he hates it when someone says, we should get a drink sometime. I hope you enjoy. Seedlip I saw in bars and I thought oh, that's amazing. It's the idea that my mum literally said, God, that's a good idea. I wish I'd come up with that. And I think there's probably people across the country being like, damn, that's an amazing idea. <laughs> <laughs> but how I actually came across your story and, and hearing that it started as a side project. So I used to run events without of hours in person. At one of the events, I met Johnny, Johnny Shields. Yeah who told me he worked at Seedlip and he said, yeah. oh, actually, I think Seedlip started as a side project. <laughs> and so I was, had it in the back of my mind for ages, like, I've got to get in touch with you and get you on the podcast because it sounds like such an amazing story. What I thought was interesting is actually there's not loads of, I've sort of listened to loads of podcasts with you now, so I've got that kind of weird fake intimacy where I feel <laughs> like I know you're <laughs> probably going to ask me questions you're like, shut up. Um, but one thing that, didn't really come across on podcasts or, or interviews that I read was the story of it going from cooking it up and experimenting in the kitchen to starting it as a business. It's something that just gets brushed over and people don't find it that interesting, but I actually think it's the most interesting part of the story. Yeah, it's definitely the hardest bit. The first six, after we launched the first six months, I hated nearly every single day. And I probably didn't hate every single day in the two years that it took to launch it. So that's one very simple barometer for me, because I, I think when you're in your own little bubble of working on something, you know, it's not out in the world, you know, it, it kind of doesn't have to happen. Uh, yeah, you're just trying to figure it all out. And so it was all quite new and quite exciting. And then actually when we launched I thought I would stay in my little bubble and I could control everything and it would go at the pace according to my Excel spreadsheet rather than the pace it wanted to go at given the market wanted it and the demand was there. Uh, so yeah, I, I kind of, I found that the setting up of the business was like, yeah, it was hard. It was, but it was new and it was interesting and I was learning so much. And then the first six months I found, yeah, really, 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 really difficult. Uh, and that's against the backdrop of seemingly sort of 
amazing things like not every day you get invited to Buckingham Palace and it's not every day you get an email from the fat duck and it's not, you know, kind of it's not every day that you sell out batches of products in Selfridges really, really quickly. Um, but I, I fucking hated it. Can I yeah. just clarify, wait, you mean the first six months of going full time? I did it 2013. I was running my own design agency full time and, you know, starting, I guess, the sort of seedlip piece on the side. At the end of 2013, I made the decision to go full time on seedlip. So that was at a point where, you know, we hadn't launched, but I got the tattoo, literally put my life savings in and sold my stake in the design agency. I was just like, right, I'm going to try and get this onto a shelf. Uh, But I had, you know, I was going to run out of money, basically. (laughs) The goal was to get it on a shelf. That was the only goal. And I didn't know what was going to happen after that. But yeah, that was sort of like, look, I've got probably a year where I can fund myself doing this, you know, and then it's got to start selling. It's got to, it's got to kind of, it's got to go. It's got to happen. So let's go back to the design agency. Were you the founder there? Yeah, it was, it was me and two other partners. So my, my dad's been in the design world for, I mean, all of his career. So 40 odd years, uh, and has his own design agency. And so I kind of, I started learning, I guess, about design and brands and packaging and stuff at a pretty early age and didn't want to stay on the farm and sit on tractors and stay in rural Lincolnshire. Um, so I sort of spent my career in the design world um, and got the opportunity to work with startups and founders and you know, deluded idiots that thought it'd be a really good idea to, you know, start your own thing against the facts that are most people, certainly in the food and drink world, who start businesses fail. (laughs) You know, like the odds are so massively stacked against you. You have to have an irrational and delusional level of belief and optimism in what you're doing to keep going and go against all of the facts and all of the evidence out there that says this is a really bad idea. It feels like there's kind of a few standard buckets of starting a business. One is like, I kind of didn't really have any other options. This kind of adversity story of like, either I got fired. Another one is like, I I saw this problem, I felt it every day and I just had to sort of solve it. And then another one is I was just interested and I was exploring and I was curious and I kind of, and then I sort of fell into it. And then another one is like, I looked at market sizing and I wanted to make money and it felt like a good opportunity. Do you think yours is more experimentation or was it more like, this is the business idea? This was not analyzing market data. This was not, I want to start a business. What shall that business be? I, I was running a business. I had a business. This was a very deep seated selfish exercise in needing to find an outlet to express my values and my absolute adoration of the natural world and find some way of seeing an idea through because I'd had lots of ideas um, and they'd never stuck. And so I definitely internalized a belief that I couldn't finish anything. And so hence the goal being eventually just to get something on a shelf. That was the end to me. That was the, that was, that was it. I was enough. I didn't, I didn't really care how it went. And to me, that was seeing it through, but I, I think see that could have been anything. It ticks so many boxes for me on so many different levels of yes, having created brands for other people, having my own brand. Yes, getting to choose names and design and bring something to life, which I'm passionate about from a creativity perspective. Yes, it gives me an opportunity to eat in really nice restaurants and not have to pay for it myself. I was fulfilled and it was meeting a need that people had in their lives of getting a decent non-alcoholic drink. 
I want to go back just then because I think that's so interesting that that you had that feeling that you couldn't finish things. People sometimes will put on a pedestal entrepreneurs and be like, oh, but they're the kind of person that like they see the finished product. Can you tell me a bit about either ones which you did start and didn't finish or, or where you think that belief came from? Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess, you know, I, I, when I left school, I, I kind of, I just wanted to be a chef and I just wanted to cook and, you know, I went to cooking school and and trained up, but I didn't become a chef and I didn't go and work in a restaurant, you know. Uh, I went and worked in a pub and I went and was a security guard and I went and sold British gas door to door. And I left all of those things without seeing them through. And then I went and, you know, learned how to breathe fire and do put on shows in Thailand. And then I went and learned how to be a snowboard instructor. And then I taught kids how to snowboard in New Zealand. And, and so I kind of, da- I, you know, I bounced, I bounced around working my way around. And I was lucky that I'd grown up around a brilliant work ethic from you know, my father, but also my mother's side and the farming side of the family. That was instilled in me really early on. So I kind of, I just knew I needed to work hard and and the rest would hopefully take care of itself. So I don't know, I don't really know where I, I kind of thought that I can't finish stuff. Maybe it's just the fact that I'd had loads of ideas and wrote them all down and never did anything with them. I never told people about them. I just sort of thought I've got all this this energy that I need to put somewhere uh, and put into something. I don't know what that is. I haven't found the one yet, and maybe I don't need to force it. And you know, it was when I didn't force it and I did something really aimlessly, like buying a little copper still and mucking around in my kitchen with no ambition or outcome or business or drink in mind when I relax that pressure on myself to find the business or find the thing that was going to give me all this fulfillment, that that's when it happened. When I didn't force it, you know, when I, when I took the, took the pressure off and did something just for the sake of doing something, you know, which I don't do very often in my life. I think it's hard for everyone People just get this sense in their head, which is there's no point doing this unless it's going to be successful or there's no point doing this unless I'm going to make money out of it. It's actually like an active thing you have to cultivate to kind of reject that. One transition that I think happens when you move from side project to full-time business, you have to kind of lose that kind of um, curiosity in some ways because, you know, you've got salaries to pay and you've got targets to hit. How did you find that transition from it being kind of a creative experimental project to having to hit KPIs and being process driven? Yeah, I mean, I didn't know what KPI was, uh, (laughs) I must say. Um, I think really simply, I know, and I certainly learned in the two years kind of leading up to launch, what I was really good at and what I wasn't really good at. And as a kind of sole founder without, you know, a load of co-founders involved, wanting to understand every single aspect of a business from P&Ls and balance sheets and cash flows and how investment works and writing business plans and how trademarks work and value chains and wanting to literally learn everything about it all because I was interested to, but also because... I wanted to and I had to because I was sort of on my own, as it were. That that therefore gave me like a really simple recruitment strategy when it came to finding first employees because all I did was hire what I wasn't good at. I made a real point of, of going, selling lots of bottles does not excite me at all. But selling lots of bottles does excite lots of people. So I need to go and find the people that are excited about selling the bottles. I'm excited about what selling lots of bottles allows you to do and the possibilities it creates. So, for example, there would be no opportunity to design a garden at Chelsea Flower Show, right? Which we did two years in a row uh, if the business wasn't 
growing and selling lots of bottles. There, there would be no opportunity to fly to a little place called Boise in Idaho and meet the family that invented and bred the first ever sugar snap pea. And these are the paybacks, right? The paybacks that anyone listening, you must find and have to make it worthwhile. There have to be the, the moments of sitting in Blue Hill Stone Barns outside of New York, a dream of a restaurant that's A, serving Seedlip, and B, I'm going for an amazing meal at with my wife. They, they are the absolute little paybacks and having those dreams, I, I think, is the sort of give and take. And having a really clear set of, this is what I'm good at, this is what I'm not good at, higher against what we're not good at. Yeah, in one sense, that was kind of as straightforward as I could make it, so that I could stay creative and free and you know, I, I managed kind of two things, basically. I managed raising money to ensure that we could grow the business. And I managed, you know, I guess the brand and making sure that the pack, liquid included, pack, bottle, the thing that we were going to sell was as best as it could be. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm Seedlip's worst critic. So nobody can ever say anything worse than I thought about Seedlip. You know, you're talking about kind of goals or the vision of the high points and the things that make it all worthwhile. Is that like an intentional exercise? Like, did you find yourself sitting down and going, this is how I want to live my life? Or was it something that you sort of fell into it and the business grew and then you started to kind of come up with those as an antidote to the more stressful side of it? Um, good question. I definitely am and have the proof that as, as terribly pithy as it sounds, dreams do come true. So I I kind of, you know, I, and there's such silly little examples, but I don't know. I have dreamt for a long time of meeting Sir David Attenborough, for example. Last year, I got to meet Sir David Attenborough, not and and only because of Seedlit. I I had a girlfriend, you know, eighteen, nineteen years ago that I was madly in love with, and then we both went off traveling, and you know, life carried on. And because of Seedlip, and because of a Seedlip event, and because of some weird internal belief I had that maybe one day. I'd meet this girl again and see her again. You know, she's now my wife and the mother of my children. Because of a Seedlip event that a friend of hers wanted Seedlip to sponsor and partner with and have a bar at. And and so it's just, I don't know, it's literally a, a kind of, you know, Grant Ashatz who, you know, incredible chef, just brilliant mind, was on chef's table, you know, for anyone listening just an absolute wizard. People like him, Dan Barber, like these incredible chefs that I just think are just amazing. You know, I've, I've had the kind of honor to meet uh, because I've sort of not gone out of my way to go meet them, but because Seedlip has given me an outlet and a reason to meet them, I guess. Um, so I don't know, they, they, you know, when you're, when you kind of, and I haven't traveled for a long time, but when you go London to Amsterdam, Amsterdam to Taiwan, Taiwan to Hong Kong, Hong Kong to Singapore, Singapore, Sydney, Sydney, Melbourne, Melbourne, uh, Auckland, Auckland, LA, LA, Chicago, Chicago, New York, New York, Toronto, Toronto, London. And you do that in two weeks and you do that multiple times. That's, that's like, that's not fun <laughs> to me. Uh, it was needed for the business, but not fun. And so there has to be paybacks. There has to be payoffs. There has to be, there has to be something back that gave me the kind of keep going. Did you ever have moments at the harder times of building Seedlip where you 
had to artificially come up with them. I'm just always curious how much time people spend on that or how natural it is versus how cultivated it is. I, I obsess over it. I, 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 don't write, I don't write anything down. I don't write it down. And I don't um, organize it and I don't plan it. But for example, I live on our farm here. We're in the countryside. We're surrounded by nature. But I have this, I have this sort of craving to build a cabin somewhere in some woods. And I have this kind of, this craving that I, I want to take the kids to, you know, this cabin that is an incredibly simple and real and, and raw. And I, I just, I don't know where that's going to be. I haven't done anything about it. Um, but I, I, the longer I live and the more these, more evidence there is, right, that you put things out into the world or you kind of dream things, the more evidence I have that they're going to come true. So I, I know that there will be that cabin, but also I kind of trust that, I don't know, there's, I'm gonna, there's going to be a right time where I'm going to take some action on it because obviously it's not going to be handed to me and it's not going to suddenly magically appear. I have to go and find a woodland. I have to go and build a cabin. You know, they're quite action-orientated things, but it's just not not right this second. So I can keep dancing around the dreams of keeping that alive. How do they come to you? This is what I'm interested in. Because <laughs> I think what a lot of people lack is clear direction. It, it, I honestly think that. Um, and I think that's because either there's so many options, they don't know where to start, or they just, there's nothing that seems to be particularly exciting to them. How do, where do you think the kind of direction comes from? I'm sort of, on the one hand, I think I'm, you know, a deluded optimist and, and uh, you know, incredibly kind of driven in the sense that anything's possible and you can make it happen. You've got to take responsibility and you can, you know, no one's going to hand you anything. You go, you go make it happen and it's possible to make happen. On the other hand, I'm driven by an absolute fear of failure. Uh, rather than the pursuit of kind of achievement and success. So I just think that I've learned how, I guess, how short life is and that I, I kind of, I feel like I have a different perspective on time uh, than I did maybe five or six years ago. And, you know, nature's going to be fine, right? It, it's It's human beings that really we as a human race should be incredibly worried uh about what's coming because there will be lots of animals and species that will be extinct there'll be lots of new ones and nature will just continue whereas the, the human race it, it doesn't look so good for so I, I am also conscious of making the most of now and making the biggest impact i can uh because yeah it, it's it's pretty short really when you think about it and that helps drive this constant kind of urgency and impatience and dissatisfaction that I have as a, a kind of undercurrent to kind of make things better or change things or do things differently or grab opportunities when they come. That's the other, the other interpretation of out of hours as well, which is like we are all running out of hours. So do that thing yeah. that I've been talking about the whole time. Because I think we do overestimate how much time we have left. And I think just getting started on something and realizing that your biggest fear is not that scary at all compared to, as you say, some actually very real fears. I mean, climate change is, is definitely, at least in my mind, the most pressing. Let's kind of go back in time um, to the first ever iteration of Seedlip. So it probably wasn't even called Seedlip. It probably didn't taste like Seedlip. What, what was it like? God, it seems like a long time ago. The picture that comes to my mind is my kitchen table and a load of little glass bottles um and i tried loads of different blends of ingredients and i tried distilling lots of different things but the the blend i'd kind of got happy with was uh was all about sort of what became seedlip spice which was the first product we launched all spice is the kind of key 
dominant ingredient. And then I had kaffir lime and grapefruit and lemon. And I'd found this family of maize farmers in the Bahamas who grew this shrub called cascarilla, um, which back in the 17th century was called sweetwood. And it, and it's kind of, you know, it's kind of colory and nutty and it's used in some vermouths. And that felt like, oh, I, I reckon I could get a chef or a bartender quite excited about that because that's quite unusual. It was sort of like a rough diamond, I, I guess, is how I have it in my mind of like the direction was there. The profile was kind of there. It worked really well with tonic. And, and that probably wasn't really until spring 2015, you know, and launch was November the 4th, 2015. So yeah, that was a, a good moment. And that, that started to give me the confidence to kind of go, right, I need to go and see what someone like Selfridges thinks of this, you know, scrap the consumer research. I already have enough people telling me that this is a ridiculous idea. Um, I know what people are going to say. It's a ridiculous idea. Don't do it. But what does the buyer at Selfridges think? And what does, you know, a really top bartender like Ryan Chetty, what does he think about this? Because if they think there's something in it, then then I'm willing to kind of go for it, I guess. Um, but if they think it's shit, then I probably won't bother. Did you get in touch with Selfridges? I did. I got a friend of mine had launched their rum in, in Selfridges and, and introduced me to the buyer, uh, a lady called Dawn Davies, who's who's not there anymore. But and she <laughs> she emailed back, I should frame this email, and I love Dawn and I have so much to thank her for. But she emailed back going, You can have 15 minutes and I don't like anything without alcohol in. Really? And you're like <laughs> And you're like, oh, right, there's the gauntlet. So I'm, and I could, this day, I remember very clearly walking into Selfridges, like shit scared with a little bottle of seedlip spice, a bottle of tonic, a bottle opener and a glass, literally kind of ready to go thinking I've got 15 minutes. And then my laptop with some pretty pictures of, you know, seedlip designs, walking into her office you know, ready to burst with, right, let me try it, try it. Here we go. Have a look. What do you think? And I spent an hour with her and she loved it. And she kept calling people in, come and taste this. And she said, I want it. I want it in Selfridges. And also I'm leaving in a few weeks to go and be the buyer for this great distributor in London that supplies lots of top hotels and restaurants and bars. And she said, I want it there too. So I, just, I left, I walked across and there's a little coffee, a little Italian coffee shop just on the other side of Oxford Street. I sat down in there and then my inbox went ping, 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 ping five times. And she'd introduced me to five of the best bartenders in London. And I was just like, what the fuck? You know, I've, I've just got a first retailer. I've got a route to market coming up and I've now got five more meetings, hopefully with five of these top bartenders and that was that was that was a pretty yeah a really pivotal day I, I guess because it it was sort of the day where you're just like holy shit maybe there's something here and also the day where you're like oh god I'm actually gonna have to do this now uh, oh, yeah. mixed feelings I'm gonna see this through it wasn't still on the side at that point was it or this was I mean it, no it was it was me no, it was me kind of spending every waking minute, you know, that I could on this and being obsessed and going to every single botanical garden in England, you know, and to the one in Edinburgh and going to every single farming museum I could find and, you know, having great chats with <laughs> you know, the director of baskets at the Museum of English Rural Life and flicking through 1920s copies of Farmers Weekly, trying to find photos of you know people still using seed lips, which were the baskets to sow seed. I was I was fully yeah, I was fully kind of obsessed with with it all. When did you decide to go full time on it? What were you doing on the side? Was it just like the tinkering and yeah, it was the tinkering, it was the learning, it was the evenings and weekends of experimenting, of 
reading lots of business plans of you know learning about um investment and it was just a whole load of learning that was going on really in the first year when I was just doing it on the side. The bit I got to was I, I started to realize that A, Seedlit was what I wanted to be doing all my time. B, that actually trying to straddle, you know, my a family friend of mine said to me, it, it sounds like you've got a foot on each train. And it sounds like those trains are starting to go off in different directions. It's probably time to make a choice. I was becoming less interested and less helpful and effective with the design agency. And my work on Seedlit wasn't as good because I was slightly feeling guilty some of the time of like, I love this, but this is not really what I'm meant to be doing. You know, I'm meant to be over here. So yeah, it did. It got to a it got to a point where it's a, it was sort of like, am I gonna am I gonna keep going with with this seed lip thing, and therefore kind of get on that train and be fully on that train? And I'm I'm far more of an all or nothing person, so that that sort of discomfort around not being really good to either things and not do and doing two things at once. I needed to to sort of nip that in the bud and and make a choice. I think you're right. Like there comes a tipping point, especially when it's a business and where you have to kind of make a choice because it is too too much of a pull. But I think often, depending on the project and also depending on the stage of the project, it can be really amazing actually for your full time work because you're like you know what you were saying, like you were craving creating something and actually mm-hmm. doing something with your hands. And like, I think, especially with agencies, I hear it a lot in agencies where people are like, I'm doing a lot of stuff. As you say, I'm not doing the whole product. I'm kind of, I'm doing it on behalf of a brief from someone else. Like it it can feel quite frustrating. Like before you decided you really wanted to kind of make it a business, was there a period where it was actually good for your design agency? Or do you think even from the beginning, it's just the way that you are? It's a really good question because what, where I do think I, I, it did really help was agency side you're in service of your clients and uh some big brands and some small brands but you never really know what it's like on the other side and it gave me that window and exposure to like oh shit basically the design of the product and the brand is not the only thing that these guys have to deal with Yes, and in a design it, and I've definitely been guilty of this design agency side. It's like that's all there is to this, guys. I think it exposed me to like the million and one priorities that there are. You know, when I'm kind of going, yeah, but don't take that you know special foil stamp off the label, guys. Uh, that's really really important. And they're just clients are kind of going, you've got no fucking idea. This is the least important thing in my world right now, Ben. It did allow me some empathy, I guess, to just sort of go, oh, right, I, I'm getting a sense of what it's like being in being in your shoes. And, and I still went ahead and did it. But, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, it was helpful. I want to kind of go back again to when you were speaking to Selfridges and you were having these like buyers meetings, you, it was a very different context to today. So today, I think, you know, it's hard to remember almost like how sort of sober alternatives or alcohol-free alternatives were perceived back then, both in terms of like in the pub and when people chose them, but also just like whether they were interesting to stop. What was the kind of mood back then? Let's start with what's going on now. And then I'll give you the, what was going on back then. There are now over 230 brands of non-alcoholic spirit in the world. Five and a half years ago, there were zero. Um, And there's lots of big numbers being flown around about trillion dollar category in the future. And, you know, lots of big, big kind of stats and a lot of energy, a lot of growth. Um, There are now bars shops dedicated to you know non-alc there are festivals conferences podcasts influencers 
books, menus, shelves, magazine articles. Uh, and this is happening all over the world. And that is pretty fucking great. But it's also, it's still early days. In the drinks industry, they talk about a 10-year overnight success. That means it takes 10 years for a brand to feel like it's, you know, just suddenly popped out of nowhere and, and exploded. Five, six years ago, uh, there were no books. There were no influencers. There were no podcasts. There were no articles. Uh, there were no Google searches. There were no fixtures, menus. There was a really bad reputation for cardboard-like tasting out beer. And there was maybe a Bex Blue or a Caliber or an O'Doul's in the US. And that was about it, which meant that I, I was either thought of as an absolute genius by some people in the trade or an absolute fucking lunatic by, by a lot of other people. And, you know, a bottle of Seedlip made people angry. And that's pretty incredible from a psychological perspective that an inanimate object that you do not have to touch, buy, consume or interact with can really make make you angry it speaks to people's own attitudes and behaviors around alcohol there's something very culturally deep about our relationship with drinking and socializing it's it's part of the you know the kind of cultural rhetoric uh, you know certainly around the 80s and 90s of the glamorization of excess you know it's sort of it was cool to for celebrities to fall out of nightclubs and the the sort of male, you know, we're the lads and we drink beer and that's a manly, macho, badge of honour thing to do. You know, it, it's sort of deep within our psyche that drinking alcohol, you know, it's a bit like, I don't know, drinking coffee. Is it more because of like a bonding, like a social bonding thing? And they feel like, oh, I'm going to be drunk and vulnerable and you're going to be sober. I think socializing, socializing historically has been really simple and really centered around alcohol. So, you know, and this is a, a, a silly, pithy example again, but, you know, when you can go axe throwing in London, right, on a night out, or you can go to a posh cinema, or you can go to a masterclass in something, or a workshop in something, or you can socialize around ping pong, mini golf, whatever. These are all experiences where the focus is not the drinking. The importance and role of alcohol and drinks, to be honest, whether they're alcoholic or non-alcoholic, is changing and when we you know it's probably 10 years away but when choosing something non-alcoholic becomes normal um and not questioned etc that'll be an amazing thing because it really shouldn't matter about the alcohol content uh in your drink it it, it is totally irrelevant Do you drink? yeah but not very much it doesn't bother me whatever social setting i'm in personally what i'm drinking so you have these herbs you spend ages trying to find the most interesting unique uh herbs that you can find across the uk and then you have these copper pots what's next take, let's take allspice as a good example i i flew out to jamaica i go meet the farmer mr sherlock how allspice trees are grown and they are trees you know and they're picked when they're just turning from green to purple and then they're dried in the sun on big concrete slabs for about four days. Then they're sent off to the, uh, the packing and the processing factory. Um, and you know, they are in the sacks, in the Hessian sacks, and then they are sent over uh, to the distillery. And we steep, we kind of put the allspice berries into a vessel with a mixture of water and alcohol for a specific amount of time. And, and that just starts to like extract some of the flavors before we then put all of that into a still. And then we use distillation to do two things. We can remove the small amount of alcohol because the boiling points of alcohol and water are different. 
So our first distillation removes some of the alcohol and the flavors that we don't want. And then the second distillation captures and concentrates all of that amazing allspice, aromatic kind of flavor. And we do that for each individual ingredient. And then we blend them and then we bottle them. Um, so yeah, it's, we need more, we need more allspice. We need more raw materials than you typically find if you were just making an alcoholic product and it takes a bit, bit longer and we're treating every single ingredient individually because the way that allspice behaves is very different to the way lemon peel or hay or lemongrass, you know, they're all very different and how you get their real character therefore has to be different. Because I remember asking Johnny, I was like, why is it the same price as gin and rum? I was like, God, it seems like such a ripoff. And he was like, well, actually, it takes longer than like traditional spirits to make. And it's so funny because I just I think our perception of pricing is just so based on like pre-existing categories. So I was kind of like, oh, that's convenient that it's the same price as gin or whatever. But actually, it, it takes the same time and it uses the same ingredients. Yeah. And you can buy a bottle of vodka for nine ninety nine. You can buy a bottle of vodka for nine thousand and ninety nine pounds. You know, uh, same across lots of different categories. Um, and it is about the time. And as I've heard, which has been amazing, lots of master distillers from alcohol companies say it is much harder to make something non alcoholic than alcoholic. And that is like. Thank you. You know, like it, it is, it's generally harder. Alcohol does two really amazing things. It's an amazing preservative. Nothing will grow. Nothing will go off. It's why people's, you know, cupboards are, are kind of full of bottles, you know, that might've been there for years and they're fine. It's also an incredible flavor carrier. It's brilliant at carrying flavor and it's brilliant at being a solvent, extracting flavor. And so when you strip those things out and take those things away, from a technical perspective, it, it makes it really, really difficult to make a really, really good scalable product. Do you think the level of depth and detail and kind of research and obsession that you went into, do you think that was a big differentiator in Seedlip versus others? I know that the majority of people do not give a shit that the... For example, the three animals that we have, um, they were all given their Latin name, their binomial name, uh, in the same year by the same person. And the same person only named 4,000 animals in the world, right, with their Latin names, Carolus Linnaeus. Um, and most people are never going to know that and don't care. Most people will not know that my ancestors' initials are hidden in the acorn on seedlip spice. Like, they do not, who, like, who cares? Um, but for me, given that this is, you know, to take it back full circle to where we started, you know, there is a selfish aspect that must be present in having your own business. Um, this is what I needed to do uh, for me to kind of have, as I did with the experience of going to a bar, analyzing and breaking down every single element of that experience and how shit it feels when you're either told, oh, the bartender could make you something if you're not drinking alcohol, or, oh, let me flick you to the back page of the menu. You're that important guest that I'm just going to turn you to the, the back page where the kids drinks and the soft drinks and um, or you're laughed at, whatever. Or something's taken out of the fridge and given to you. But if you were drinking something that was alcoholic, something would be taken off the back bar. So it's just obsessing over all those. I, I'm I'm the of the belief that things need to be really, really simple, right, for the public. And the only way I know how to make something simple is to scrape the absolute barrel on it and leave it no stone unturned and go really really deep really really thorough to then make it really really simple you know we used to give we used to give all new employees mc sarchi's uh, brutal simplicity of thought book which is a fantastic book um all about the power of 
doing the extra work to make something simple. Because it's, you know, people don't care about drinks. They do not care about drinks. They do not walk around thinking about them. They have got so many other things in their lives that are way more important. They just want to have a good time and they want choice. They want options, um, but they're not walking around thinking about drinks all day. So it, it, yeah, it, it does need that work needs to be done by the brand and the company, not expecting the consumer to do that. But I think, as you say, like, even though they don't care, it, people can sense it. I think people can sense when something's craft or, or kind of has that depth. And I think sometimes people make that mistake, which is in the branding world where they go, oh, well, consumers don't really care. So we'll just keep it super simple. And we don't need to do a bunch of research. And, you know, but actually, like, consumers don't care, but they like that someone else cares. And buyers care and bartenders care and journalists care and... You know, you've got to have some substance behind what you're talking about for people to believe in what you're doing. Um, anyone can make anything look nice cheaply now. You can go on the internet, you can pay a designer, you can have a logo, and you can make something look nice. That is not the sort of 21st century challenge of brands and brand creation. Anyone can make it look nice. I think it's worth talking about Diageo because that's pretty major. So you took investment from them originally. How soon into the business? Yeah, so 2016 through their, I guess their kind of drinks accelerator investment arm called Distill Ventures. Yeah, so Diageo took a minority stake. It was amazing and was amazing to announce to the world that one of the world's biggest premium spirits companies has invested in something that's non-alcoholic. That was you know a real marker in the sand i feel um and then they were brilliant they funded us and let us get on with it as long as it kept going well they just need to keep giving some money keep funding the business and we keep doing it and then in summer of 2019 diageo and myself flipped roles so i became the minority shareholder they became the majority shareholder i mean we've been working together for a good few years now but yeah, I'm still a shareholder, still involved, still going to be traveling and uh, working on new products. I'm still a shareholder and still very much involved in the business, which I'm really enjoying without having to be perfectly candid, the weight of the world on my shoulders. You know, Diageo, FTSE 10 uh, company, they're, they're an amazing, uh, amazing kind of outfit with distribution in 180 countries and you know when you own brands like guinness and johnny walker that in your having that in your corner when you're trying to scale something in the drink space in the alcohol space um like i i couldn't think of a better a better partner and I'm, I'm really not just saying that that's who you want in your corner when you were building Seedlip, were there any moments where you thought, fuck, I should have moved more quickly on that? Or, damn, that was too hasty. Do you think generally you go to, you make decisions too fast or too slow? There are, there are sort of two kinds of decisions, I think. One is, and they're all about risk and what's the worst that can happen. And so some decisions I made, some decisions I can make really, really quickly when should we go to the US, for example? That was a that was not a quick decision. When and how should we go to the US? That was not a quick decision. Uh, should we have a garden at Chelsea Flower Show? That was a quick decision. Let's have a garden at Chelsea Flower Show. Penguin wrote me an email saying we'd really love to discuss doing a book with you. I have a collection of like 4,000 vintage penguin books from the 1940s at home and love that company. That was a quick decision. The sort of like the, yes, let's explore it. Uh, rather than where do I sign? I'm impatient, I'm impulsive, but yeah, I think when it's something that would have a big negative or positive impact for the business, I would never make a decision, for example, post lunchtime. I'd never make a decision on a Friday. 
So all decision, key decision-making meetings I would want to have in the morning because that's when my brain is working best. Do you have any other quirks of things that you've found through kind of studied self-awareness? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> we banned email really, really early on internally. It was only ever for external. I did a lot of stuff on looking into how emails should be written, you know, coaching my team on five-sentence emails. What do you think a good email looks like? I think a good email uh, drives at getting to a decision or an action. You know, I have pet hates like, don't say to me we should go for a drink sometime. I fucking hate that. Because what I do is I, I, I make people then feel uncomfortable by going, I get my phone out and go, when? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and they and they, they lose their they lose their they lose their cool because it, we have that throwaway like, hey, we should do lunch sometime. Yeah, when? Okay, when, what, when can you do? Uh, so yeah, try to drive everybody towards sort of action and decision and using question marks and punctuation to drive at getting a response, right? If you're emailing a buyer and a hundred other people are emailing a buyer, how do you make sure that you're the email that is easy to respond to quickly. So the goal was to be the email that's read and responded to immediately because it's made easy to do that. And on first glance, it looks manageable to read a few sentences and be able to respond. I don't know. That was just one of the little, yeah, one of the little areas that I got got probably irrationally obsessed about. Is it a similar thing to what you were talking about, about being aware of time and just wanting to spend your time well on this planet? Speaking of time, I'll ask you one last question. So there's this great quote that I'm obsessed with from this mindfulness coach called Darren Larson. And he says, noticing you're alive is a taste that adults have to reacquire. And what he really means is like, it's so easy for us to go in autopilot and sort of just not feel alive and, and just sort of get by. What do you do to make you feel alive? I feel really fortunate that, you know, I love nature. I try and experience obviously as, as much around nature in different environments as possible. But when you get to see it through the eyes of the kids and I don't know, we've got conkers all over the place at home, seeing conkers through the eyes of a two-year-old is like seeing it all over again. And, um, that magic, you know, like going and doing some carpentry or carving a spoon with our our nine-year-olds, making a bow and arrow I did as a kid, you know, getting to kind of do those things again, looking at bees under microscopes and just that kind of stuff, I, I feel like where you don't really notice time and it's just about the experience of, them seeing something and understanding something and you not racing and being taught patience and all this bit that kids are so great at doing that's definitely allowed me and pushes me to kind of experience new stuff and and see things again in a different way that as I've grown up I maybe take for granted just how intricate a fur cone is and how beautiful a oak leaf is and showing a child that is yeah such a privilege thanks for listening to the out of hours podcast if you enjoyed this episode please do leave a review or subscribe so you don't miss the next episode 